If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Last week, we read the account in Mark's gospel in chapter 9 of the transfiguration of Jesus. And as I was considering the Advent themes and thinking about what we would discuss with joy, I thought we would linger in a way a little longer on the Mount of Transfiguration as we consider those who are witnesses of it. We looked last week at how Peter discussed his VIP access to the transfiguration of Christ. He said in 2 Peter chapter 1, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But here it is. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. Remember this from last Sunday? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter was an eyewitness to the majesty of Jesus Christ. He heard the voice from heaven. And so today, instead of moving on to the next passage in Mark's gospel, I want us to linger again in a way on the Mount of Transfiguration and consider another eyewitness. John. John wrote in his gospel in chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he said, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory, John says. So on this, the fourth Sunday of Advent with the theme of joy, on our minds, I want us to consider how believing the eyewitnesses, believing, for example, the eyewitness account of John and the other New Testament authors will complete our joy. So you're tracking with me. Do you see the connection to the gospel of Mark? So this is a, a tangent, if you will, but we're still on the mountain in a way and we're considering the eyewitness John. So with that in mind, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word from 1 John chapter 1. The apostle writes, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. Would you please be seated? 
It was not very long ago that I was speaking with a member who was experiencing some doubts. Doubts about the reliability of Scripture. How can I know, he asked, that the Bible is true and reliable? It's a question that many have faced before. And this Christmas, I want to have the joy of knowing that you as believers can have assurance of your faith in the incarnate Jesus who came to this world to save us from sin, died on a cruel cross, was buried, and rose again from the grave. John said at the end of this first letter he wrote, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So if John's gospel, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if John's gospel was written so that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, he says that's his purpose, John 20, verse 31. Then 1 John was written so that we may know that what we believe is true and that we may have assurance. So John says in verse 4 of our text today, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What does he mean? He has just spoken in verse 3 of having fellowship in Christ with those who have faith in the message of Christ. And he declares, and I believe that what he's saying is the joy, our joy, is not just his joy, but their joy. Together, our, it's a plural our. He wants all of us to have joy as he's writing this letter to them. And so I would argue today, this is our joy to believe what he has written and these things. And then he also says, it is a full joy. It's not a partial joy. It's a complete joy. All the joy we could ever want or need. He's only echoing the words of Christ that our brother Jim Read earlier today, John 15, verse 11. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. In John 16 and 24, he said, Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Jesus says, Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. We will have a fullness of joy in our shared life with Christ, abiding in Christ. And that fullness of joy is ours through our friendship and our fellowship with one another, 1 John 1, 3, and with God, who is now our Father. And all of it made possible by the good news of Jesus coming to reconcile us to him. The Son, Jesus, about whom John witnesses in the first couple of verses, He says about him in verse 1 that he was a witness to the eternal second person of the Trinity. So if you're following along in the outline today, John was a witness to the eternal second person of the Trinity. Why do we say this, the eternal second person of the Trinity? Well, that phrase at the beginning, that which was from the beginning or what was from the beginning, harkens our ears back to other portions of Scripture, doesn't it? I think, for example, of John's gospel, where he uses the phrase, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
in him, meaning Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. In other words, the eternal, pre-existent second person of the Trinity is who they heard, who they had seen. But get this, he was also the one that they touched. They touched him. John, secondly, was a witness to the incarnate humanity of Jesus of Nazareth. Not just that which was from the beginning. No, he says, we touched Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Danny Aiken writes that as an apostle and friend of Jesus, that John is presenting a rigorous defense for the real and genuine humanity of the Son. He says four things about the word of life. First, we heard him with our ears. John repeats it for emphasis. We heard him. He makes sure you know that they listened to him. Second, they saw him with their eyes. John states this three times for emphasis in just three verses. Furthermore, he says we observed him. It's not just that we caught a glimpse of him. They watched his life. They walked with him for years. They observed closely this person. Thirdly, we touched him. With our hands, we touched him. He was a real flesh and blood human being. He was not a ghost or a phantom. And fourth, we testify and declare as eyewitnesses that this eternal life was with the Father and was revealed to us. It's him testifying like in a courtroom. You can listen to this eyewitness and know the account is true. I want to talk for a moment about the idea of touching Jesus. It seems a little strange. Why does he need to include that we touched him? Well, it's because you need to understand the backdrop of this letter was countering a heresy called docetism. The docetism was the idea that Jesus was just an apparition. He just appeared. It comes from that Greek word dokane. He appeared to be real, but he wasn't really physically real. The incarnation of the Son was not a flesh and blood incarnation. John says, no, no, we touched him. We saw him eat. Remember, by the way, eating was a way that you could tell if something was really a ghost or not because they didn't think that you could eat and it would stay in you if you weren't really there, right? So they saw him. They saw him. And John is building an apologetic rooted in the fact that he had carefully observed the life and ministry of Jesus. The word became flesh. There were those that were denying that. So he gave them a way of testing the spirit of those who are making these heretical claims. Just to give you the context again, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, this is how you know a spirit is of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Do you hear the emphasis that he's placing there? He wants his readers to know Jesus was human. Fully God, fully man. But in addition to bearing testimony about his eternal divinity and his tangible humanity, John thirdly proclaimed a message of fellowship, a message of fellowship with the Father and the Son. This is the fellowship we have with one another as Christians. We all share the same head, Jesus Christ. John says further in verse 7 of chapter 1, if your Bible's still open on your knee, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 
And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Listen, our unity as a church is not based on abstract philosophical ideas. It's about faith in the person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which is the theme of Mark's gospel. We're right in line with the theme of our our series here. And furthermore, it's about our obedience to Christ by walking in the light of his life. John finishes this first chapter in verse 8 by saying, if we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, however, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the key of our fellowship with one another is when we walk in the light, when we are repentant, when we are confessing our sins, which should be instructive for us whenever we from time to time speak about what it means to be members of the church. But then I I just want to hone in now with our theme of Advent joy on the mind on verse 4 of 1 John chapter 1, where John says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So fourthly, John wrote, so our joy may be complete. Now, what I will argue is that these things, we are writing these things, these things is the letter that will later be preserved as part of the New Testament. Okay, so this is what I'm going to track off of in verse 4. These things is part of the New Testament. And I believe that when we believe what John wrote, we will find greater joy. When we come to understand John's testimony of Jesus preserved for us in scripture, it will be a cause for our joy. So I'm going to shift gears, if you will. In the time that remains today, I want to seek your joy and my joy as we consider the reliability of scripture, of the New Testament. He, he was a witness, an eyewitness to the majesty of Christ. So are we going to believe what these authors wrote? And I want to give five reasons why we should believe the New Testament. Five different lines of evidence for the reliability of the New Testament. I want to be very clear that I owe a debt of gratitude to my friend Brian Seagraves. He's preached here once in January of 2020 from whom I first heard these five evidences of the reliability of the New Testament. Uh, I'm taking this largely at at large lengths from him. But there are others like Frank Turek and maybe even some before him who originally came up with these. In other words, they're not mine, but they're so helpful. I heard these in a Bible study years ago, and I want to share them with you because it will be a strengthening, I believe, of your faith and an encouragement to your joy to understand the reliability of the New Testament. I'll tell you all five of them at first, and then we'll walk through each of them briefly. So the first of these five evidences, they all begin with the letter E, is early testimony from the Bible. Early testimony for the Bible. They're, the things that were written down were written down early on, very shortly after the events that took place. 
The second reason to believe the reliability is that the testimony was by eyewitnesses. This is what got my wheels turning about the message today. They were eyewitnesses on the Mount of Transfiguration to his majesty. They saw the things they claimed to see and wrote them down about the resurrected Jesus Christ. The third evidence comes from outside the Bible, what is going to be called extra-biblical evidence. Extra with the E, extra-biblical. And then fourth, the, oftentimes the evidence for Scripture in the Word of God was embarrassing. It's an embarrassing testimony about the disciples. We've seen that a lot in Mark's Gospel, and I'll explain a little bit more about why that matters as an evidence for the reliability of the writings. And then fifthly, oftentimes... As the disciples would write these things down and lived for them, they died excruciating deaths to propagate and maintain the truthfulness of them. So there's excruciating evidence that we'll take a look at. So those are the five E's. Let's begin with early evidence. So when it comes to early evidence, what we mean by that is the time between when the event took place And the time when the original manuscripts were being written down, it's a very short time period. And then the time from when the original manuscripts were written to the time when they were copied, that was also a short time period. There are 5,800 or so full or partial copies of the Greek New Testament. Just a reminder, the New Testament was not written in English. It was written in Greek, largely. And after the original was written, then it would be sent off as a letter, for example. And then someone would copy it and send a copy off, and these copies would be copied, and that's how the documents spread. There are parts of Mark, the gospel we've been studying, Acts, Romans, 1 Timothy, 2 Peter, and James that date all the way back to A.D. 50 or A.D. 70, within 20 to 40 years of Jesus' life, these things were written down. Now, that might sound like a long time for us with Twitter and all this that we just record everything instantaneously. But consider it. If someone was to say somebody rose from the dead and was witnessed by 500 eyewitnesses in the 90s, we would know if they were telling the truth or not. That would make headlines. That would be records that could be disputed by other people who were alive at the time. I want to look at a graph. It's something that's called uh, the copy time gap. It's simply, again, the number of years between when the original was written and the earliest copy we have. For some parts of the New Testament, It's as short as 25 years. Now compare that to the other ancient works that we have. The the time gap between the copying of them is so great. Homer is the next closest at the bottom with 500 years between when Homer was written to the earliest copy that we have. And it just goes up from there. You see Caesar, 1,000, Plato, 1,200 years. A lot can change in that time. But the New Testament documents that we have today, some of them were within 20 to 40 years. Again, during the lifetime of people who were alive. So the whole idea that somehow corruption has come into the documents and they've been changed over thousands and thousands of years is simply not true. And beyond that, there's a lot of evidence. There's an abundance of evidence. The next graph we see is the number of manuscripts of the New Testament compared with other ancient works. 
Homer, you see, has about 1,800, not even a close second place. It's no contest with the amount of evidence we have in New Testament manuscripts, 5,800 full and partial manuscripts. The idea that the Bible is a puzzle that's somehow missing some pieces just doesn't stand up to the scrutiny when you have an abundance of manuscript evidence. And that's only the Greek manuscripts, by the way. When you start including Latin, Coptic, and Syriac, the number goes to 20 and 30,000 manuscripts. That's a lot of evidence, and the evidence is early. Second was eyewitness evidence. And we've already hit on this at length because we talked how Peter said we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. John says, we saw him. We heard and we touched him. The New Testament writers all give the earmarks of actually being eyewitnesses. They correctly cite locations, dialects, who the emperor was, who the governor was, all those types of rulers in different places, the names we have trouble pronouncing. Quirinius was governor of Syria, right? They get roads right. They talk about how they connect. They get obscure and remote customs correct when they talk about them. You're only going to get those things right if you were where you claimed to be, when you claimed to be there. So they prove themselves eyewitnesses based on the truthfulness of how they relate what they said to the broader context of the history surrounding it. There's also, in addition to the early and eyewitness testimony, extra biblical evidence, evidence from outside of scripture. Now, do we need evidence outside of scripture? Do we need something outside of scripture to verify it? Honestly, I don't think we do. There's a view that you can't, that some people will say like, you can't trust what the Bible says because uh, people who wrote it were biased, right? They believe that Jesus was God's son. They think Christianity is true. So you can't just trust what they say. Well, flip that on its head. And I think you could ask that same person the question and say, well, then I can't believe anything that non-Christians write about the Bible. Well, why not? Well, they're biased. They don't believe that God, Jesus is God's son. They don't believe it's true. They don't think that Jesus rose from the dead. So I can't believe anything that they write. It gets a little silly when you start applying the same standards both directions. Really, you could take it a step further and say what that person really is saying is you can't trust what people write if they believe that what they write is true. It just doesn't stand up to logic. The New Testament documents should be given the same benefit of the doubt that we give any other ancient work. It doesn't need to be corroborated outside of itself to be considered true on its own merits. But with that said, this also can be important. It can be helpful to look at other documents that were there and written in the lifetime of Jesus. Looking at one, for example, written by Flavius Josephus, who was a Jewish historian who lived from the years 37 to 100, he wrote several works chronicling the history of the Jews, and he writes this, quote, at the time of Pilate, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate 
condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders, end quote. This is outside the Bible. It doesn't say Jesus is God. It doesn't say Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't say people saw him after death. It says people believed he rose from the dead. It's an honest assessment of what the disciples were claiming to be true and that they didn't recant their testimony that they claimed to see him after death. And so you have to ask the question when you start piecing it all together, what best accounts for all of this evidence outside of the Bible and those who wrote that they were there and saw it? As you're hearing these types of evidences this morning, ask yourself, what is the best explanation for it all? What makes the most sense of it all? Is it made up or is it true? Regardless of how you may personally feel about scripture, you need to look at this objectively and ask, what is the best explanation for all of this evidence? In addition to Josephus, there are nine other known non-Christian authors that talk about Jesus within 150 years of his life. Remember, only nine sources mention Tiberius Caesar. And if you include Christian sources, which you should, there are 43 different documents that talk about Jesus of Nazareth within 150 years of his life. Once again, no contest when you compare it to any other ancient figure. From non-biblical sources, we know a lot. For instance, we know Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar So the idea that's floated out there that Jesus of Nazareth never existed is demonstrably false, even, hear it, based on secular history. Jesus of Nazareth was a real man who walked this planet, and he made claims. And there are eyewitnesses who claim to know and have seen and touched and heard what he said. The question is, will we believe the evidence. So there's early evidence, there's extra biblical evidence, there's eyewitness evidence, but then oftentimes the evidence in the Bible is embarrassing. We need to face up to something that we all kind of inherently, or excuse me, inherently know this morning, and that's something historians call the principle of embarrassment. Simply put it like this, details that are most embarrassing to an author are most likely true. In other words, you don't make stuff up to make yourself look bad. You don't tell a lie to make yourself look worse. You might tell a a joke about yourself, but you're not going to write a history that portrays you horribly. The authors of the Bible write about themselves in Scripture. And for instance, we've seen a number of times in Mark's gospel, Jesus believes them to be a little slow, a little slow on the uptick. Remember all the incidents of bread? where they're like, they're talking about the bread. And Jesus is like, you're talking about bread again? Don't you understand? They they just don't get it. They're dull repeatedly over and over again. So God tells you something and you don't get it over and over again. He calls you a fool and you write it down. Like, I just want everybody to know how foolish and slow I was. More than that, the disciples are portrayed as uncaring. 
Before Jesus goes to the cross, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. He tells his disciples, stop here and pray for me, and they fall asleep. And they say, let's write that down. Why don't we make that up about ourselves? We were so uncaring that we wouldn't even pray for Jesus for a little bit while he was in the garden, sweating drops. No, it's true because it's embarrassing. Like you don't make that stuff up. And perhaps the most noteworthy of these embarrassing evidences was in Mark's gospel that we just talked about a couple weeks ago, where Peter is called Satan by Jesus. Could there be a worse name for you to be called by Jesus than Satan? Now just think about it. If this, if this was a fictitious gospel, Mark and Peter are sitting around the campfire and they just have this grand idea. And Mark goes to Peter, he says, you know what, I got a good one here. It doesn't matter what happened before or after. I'm just going to write this in. Jesus is going to turn around to you and say, get behind me, Satan. And you think Peter's just like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Let's put that in there. That'll be real flattering to me. You're never going to include those kinds of evidences unless it actually happened. The disciples record that they were cowards, doubters. They run away at the crucifixion. They don't even believe Jesus was who he claimed to be and after he taught them repeatedly and they record it all for us to see. But it's not just the embarrassing things about the disciples. There's also things that would be considered embarrassing about Jesus himself. He's considered to be out of his mind by his own family. His family wants him Baker acted. That's not a good way to start a new religion. The chief and principal person about whom we are going to write was considered to be crazy by his own family. That's not good. He was called a drunkard. He had his feet wiped by the hair of a prostitute, which would have been considered a sexual advance. All of this is recorded for us in the Gospels. And then there is the culturally revolutionary fact that Jesus first appeared after the resurrection to women. At the time, the social standing of women was incredibly low, and a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. So Jesus appears to women at the empty tomb and at other points. So if you are making up a story, are you catching this? If you were going to make it up, you would have Jesus appear to men first. Now, I want to be clear, that's the view of women of the culture of the day, not God's view of women It was an incorrect cultural view, but nonetheless, if you were going to make up a story to start a religion, you would not have had Jesus appear first to women. And there's a lot more of this type of embarrassing evidence, so to speak, in Scripture if you will go through and read it with that kind of mindset. Would they make it up? Not if it wasn't true. Well, we've looked at The fact that the Bible contains embarrassing evidence, early evidence, eyewitness evidence, and there is evidence, extra biblical, outside the Bible. The last E today is excruciating evidence. Believing these things and saying these things that John wrote cost the disciples dearly. For instance, New Testament believers were abandoning their long-held sacred beliefs, their Jewish beliefs, It probably doesn't sound revolutionary to us. In a day when we can just, maybe if we were changing, we would just go to a different church on Sunday or something like that. But these were very religious and devout Jews. 
the family, friends, they might disown you for changing religion. The government at some point started persecuting them and running them out of town. And more than that, they were probably more devout than we consider ourselves today. How? Why? What could happen that would cause a Jew to go from, I have to keep the law, keep the Sabbath, be circumcised, sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of sins, to go to, I don't need to keep the law of Moses in exactly the same way. I don't need to worship on Saturday. I don't have to be circumcised. And I don't need to sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of sins. That's a pretty drastic change in religion. What accounts for that striking change except the resurrection of Jesus? I wouldn't gamble my fate on somebody who was still in the ground buried. They were convinced that he rose from the dead, and it became costly for them. They don't deny their testimony under the threat of death. History records and presents to us that all of the disciples and apostles were at least willing to suffer and die for their convictions, and many of them did. James, one of those brothers that wanted to have Jesus put away in the insane asylum, at the end of his life, he was illegally stoned for his faith in his half-brother, confessing that his brother was the son of God. How do you go from my brother's crazy to my brother is the son of God? Unless you believe it to be true. I'm not going to die for a brother when I'm halfway convinced. I need to know who he is. In the same, uh, <clears throat> what, what best Evidences, what best explanation can we have for this kind of conversion? Is seeing Jesus, seeing, touching him. But not just James, Peter, Paul, the same people who said, We did not follow cleverly invented stories, they go on to die for factual stories. This is perhaps one of the most persuasive points when people, for when it comes to understanding and believing the evidence of the Bible, people died for their claims. Now, let's step back a minute and say, well, sometimes there are religious extremists who are willing to die for their faith. So what makes us different from, let's say, somebody in ISIS or in the Middle East or somebody who would die for their belief in their Muslim faith? Now, I want to point out that that's not all Muslims. that don't all believe their faith the same way all Christians do. But there is a key difference. The apostles were willing to die for their claims And these religious extremists are often willing to kill for theirs. That's a noteworthy difference. But then secondly, this is not a fair comparison. Because when you think of the religious extremists today, were they there? Were they in a position to know whether or not the claims are actually true? Could they have been there in 600 AD when Allah supposedly through the angel Gabriel came to Muhammad and revealed the Quran? They couldn't have been there. They weren't there. They didn't see the early life of Muhammad. And yet they will die for it. But here's the difference. This leads to a helpful conclusion. Many people will die for something that they believe to be true, but nobody dies for something that they know is a lie. Do you see the difference? Many people will die for something that they believe to be true, but nobody will die for something that they know is a lie. And the apostles were in a position to know they were there. They saw. Now, I know we've covered a lot of ground today. 
And I don't expect you to remember every detail. And I, I wanted to, to say this. These were so important to me. I wrote them, you know, sometimes you have a little inside blank pages or at the back. I wrote them in the leaf of, of one of my Bibles because it was just so helpful to remind me of what we are reading, what we have. But I know we've covered a lot of ground, but my prayer is that your faith is being strengthened, that your joy tank is being filled up as we consider the reliability of God's word and the trustworthiness of the word of life who was seen, he was heard, he was touched by these eyewitnesses who gave their lives to proclaim these truths. That these things that John wrote, they cost them. John wrote so that there would be a completion of his joy and the completion of the joy of those to whom he wrote. He wrote for their assurance. So I believe if you're a Christian, these types of studies, we don't do them all the time from the pulpit. We have them in our small groups from time to time. Brother Matt has often led some apologetics classes, but these can aid us in our assurance. But the ultimate assurance that we have is our fellowship with the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit in the light of the truth of his word and living in his ways. Maybe you're here today and you're an unbeliever. I pray that you will take what I've said today seriously, that you will ask yourself honest questions. You have to deal with who Jesus is. Even secular historians acknowledge he lived and he made claims. So here's the key. The ultimate question is what will you do with Jesus? Christianity stands or falls on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It succeeds or fails on whether or not a true and genuine incarnation took place in space and in time. The options as to who Jesus is and what Jesus did can be reduced to basically four. Danny Aiken is putting on his uh, inner C.S. Lewis and expanding it a little. He says Jesus could have been a liar. Jesus could have been lying, simply claiming to be something he knew he was not. Jesus could have been a lunatic. Well, some of them thought he was initially until he rose from the dead. So he could be lying. He could have been out of his mind. Who claims to be God without it being true? He could have been a legend, something somebody made up. But again, with all of the evidence, the willingness to die for it, this is not a legend. This is eyewitness testimony. Of course, if you've been around for a while, you know what he really is. Lord. Lord. There are four options. You have to deal with who Jesus is. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Was he made up? Or is he who he claimed to be? Lord came to this earth, born in a manger, died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, rose from the dead, proved to be true. There are eyewitnesses who were there who have written this for our joy. And the question is, will you believe the eyewitnesses who were on the Mount of Transfiguration? Listen, your eternity and mine depends on it. Will you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, your word says in the book of James to go after those who doubt, snatch them away from fire. Lord, I pray that today someone has been snatched up, brought nearer to you, brought back into faith and recognition of who you are and what you've done. Lord, I pray for the strengthening of the faith of believers. May we trust the reliability of your word. And Father, if there are those who are here today who have never put their faith in Christ, I pray, not just based on the evidence, but by the move of your Holy Spirit, someone would come to faith in you. Lord, may they know with assurance that you are who you say you are. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these things that John writes. He's written them for our joy. So Lord, I pray that we would find joy in believing your word, believing the account of these eyewitnesses. Lord, we commit this time to you. We thank you for it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.